Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome back to this episode of Mysterious Circumstances. Got a good one for you here today. We're going to be talking about just ghost stories, folklore, and superstitions from the Appalachian Mountains. A lot of stuff going on there. Obviously, I had to trim it down to some of the more interesting stuff because I would be doing like 10 episodes if I tried to do everything. Before we get going, though, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers. We got Nate Pardon, Bob Johnson... Stephen Hernandez, Katie Edinburgh, and Fraser Milne. Fraser, I hope I pronounced your last name right. If I didn't, I do apologize. Anybody else who might be interested in that, you can go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. There's over a hundred bonus episodes there. I think last time I checked, we were up around like 130 or 150, something like that. It's only $2 a month. It's not too damn bad. We try to make it affordable for everybody. So uh, yeah, get bonus content, two bucks a month, whatever's clever. If you'd like to make a one-time donation and me just send you episodes that you might want from the bonus feed, uh, just hit me at Venmo at MC Podcast. And yeah, just let me know if you want crime, supernatural, paranormal, whatever the case is. And uh, yeah, I'll send them right to your email. And I am also going to read reviews at the end of this one as well. I have not done that for a long time and I have... Uh, I don't know, like six or seven of them, I think. But with all that behind us, let's get on with the show. Alright, so the exact boundaries of the Appalachian Mountains are up for debate. The history, culture, and folklore across this mountain range are pretty similar, but they are also a lot different, depending on whether you're from North, Central, or South Appalachia. They stretch from the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador to northern Alabama and Georgia. This mountain range parallels the eastern coast of North America for nearly 2,000 miles. It's one of the oldest mountain systems on Earth. It was formed roughly 480 million years ago, and the mountains are over five times as old as the Rocky Mountains. 
because they are so old, they think that erosion has taken down a lot of the peaks, and some people believe that a lot of these big, huge peaks were once taller than the Himalayas and Mount Everest. So, very old mountain range there. The Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee and North Carolina have some of the tallest peaks, and the backbone of this system, which is the Blue Ridge Mountains, stretches from Georgia all the way north to Pennsylvania. It was originally settled by Native Americans and later the Scots-Irish, English, German, and Polish immigrants. These hills and how green it was reminded a lot of the immigrants of their homelands, like the uh, Scottish Highlands and Ireland and places like that. Because of the dense forest, it provided a lot of building materials. There was a lot of uh, fresh food, game, animals... You had all these rivers and streams that are filled with fish, so it was a good place for settlers to go if they wanted to essentially thrive in a way. But when these settlers got there, they had no fucking clue, you know, what was going on. They have all this dense forest. They're not from there. They have um, natives speaking a really weird language. They have really weird customs, and they're not used to any of this shit. So when it would turn to night, the forests would be very loud. There would be all these weird, unknown sounds. So whatever the immigrants heard or saw in the dark, that's some of the stories and superstitions and legends and folklore that kind of worked their way into the storytelling factor because they didn't have TV. You know, they didn't have cell phones. So telling stories was a form of entertainment. And a lot of this uh, culture and folklore they had used to help build the community spirit. And so they had communal activities like corn shucking, house raising, log rolling. And that was bringing all these different types of people together. The mountain dances were the most popular gathering spots at the time, and they were called play parties. They would do that because a lot of the churches did not approve of dancing at the time. So, like any any person, like, fuck it, I'm dancing, you know? It's kind of like a footloose thing, except back in, like, the 17, 1800s. <laughs> when they would do these play parties, the musicians would play, like, narrative folk songs, and they would be folk songs of local legends. They would be fairy tales, they would be ghost stories, and they would incorporate that into the music. There is a popular Appalachian ghost story called The Ghost of Fiddler's Rock, and it is about an unlucky fiddler at one of these parties. So, like I said, they incorporated all this stuff together. So many ghost stories, songs, superstitions, and folk remedies were considered Appalachian folklore, but they can actually be traced back to places like Scotland or Ireland. Uh, settlers would share their stories of Scottish haints and Irish fairies, and they would adapt them into Appalachian stories over the course of different generations. So these stories would be constantly changing and evolving. And the fact that Appalachia, physically and culturally, they, they were isolated, and they still are to this day. A lot of their folklore traditions still thrive into the 21st century because of that. They also had old world traditions that was sometimes known as Appalachian granny magic or folk magic. A lot of those home remedies were incorporated through that by use of herbs and roots and uh, all kinds of different things. So 
like I said, it's like a whole melting pot of different cultures. But because of that, they created their own culture. Now, there were fights between the Cherokees that would happen from time to time, but a lot of the early settlers and the Native Americans, they all learned to coexist. And the Cherokee were only most prominent in southern Appalachia. I mean, they kind of trailed up a little bit, but southern Appalachia is definitely known for uh, Cherokee. And even some Cherokees joined forces with the U.S. against pro-British tribes during the War of 1812. The Civil War also affected Appalachia quite a bit because Appalachian people just wanted to be left the fuck alone, okay? They did not want to be bothered. They were actually split up between North, Central, and South Appalachia, but for the most part, like most of the deep Appalachian people, they just didn't want to be fucked with. They coexisted with all kinds of different cultures and races and everything like that, and they're like... You know, just, just leave us the fuck alone. But robbers and guerrilla fighters from both sides, which would be the North and the South, they would steal their livestock, they'd steal their food, they'd burn their farms down, they would terrorize all the women and children who were left behind. And children were often kidnapped and forced to serve as lookouts on mountain ridges for either side. So it was, uh, yeah, they... They just wanted to be left alone, and that was not happening. The Appalachians didn't trust the North or the South, neither one of them, because they saw a lot of shit they didn't want to see come from both sides, so they didn't trust anything. So because of that, a lot of these smaller communities just isolated themselves even more from the outside world. Because you had the War of 1812, the Revolutionary War... You had the Civil War, all the Appalachian folk, they don't forget this shit. You know what I mean? They do not forget. So a lot of the storytellers would spin ghost stories about eternally damned and suffering soldiers from both sides. That was a big thing and still is. In Georgia, the stories of the Hellhole and the legendary Green Eyes which uh, is known as Old Green Eyes, those were two tales that were told a lot. And Old Green Eyes was also known as Green Eyes of Chickamauga. As I had previously mentioned, a lot of these Appalachian folk became their own doctors and their own pharmacists because of the fact that they had carried a lot of these traditions down and they did not trust people from the outside. They would use herbs, tonics, roots. They would treat everything from typhoid fever to measles. Now, because of this, the mortality rate was really, really high, all right? So it ended up not being the best thing in the world, but they did not care. So because they were so isolated, they were their own people, they did their own thing, that inspired a lot of people to carry on and create all these stories that were focused on strange and supernatural because they're surrounded from all sides by this super dense forest and you had all these stories going and carrying on and evolving over the course of uh, hundreds of years. Now imagine that you're living in rural Appalachia over a hundred years ago. The only entertainment you have is storytelling. So you might hear stories about ghosts, something spooky, 
Uh, you might have heard a story from one of the natives living in your town or your little uh, section of the world there in Appalachia. These tales, like I said, get passed down from generation to generation, and they're often believed to be inspired by personal experiences with the unexplained. I mean, if you think about it, if you've ever stopped yourself before walking under a ladder or held your breath when you're passing a cemetery, you know, you speed up on a mountain road at night because you think you see glowing red eyes in the woods, these are all folklore from Appalachia, and we will get into a lot of other superstitions towards the end. But let's get into some fun stuff. We're going to talk about some ghost stories and legends. If you ask Southern Appalachians if they believe in ghosts, they will say no. (laughs) But these communities were very isolated at a certain point in time. They're starting to get out a little bit more. The thing was is these legends or these ghost stories would often teach you something. There was always a lesson to be learned within them. Sometimes that makes more sense than others, but... Let's get to the first one, and this one is The First Ghost of Bristol. The Book of Ghosts of Bristol, Haunting Tales from the Twin Cities by V.N. Bud Phillips, features ghost stories and lore of the local region and relates an intriguing tale of an early ghost in Bristol. And the story is set in 1854 and features a man by the name of John H. Moore, who owned a store and a small smokehouse that was located near Lee and Moore Streets in Bristol. So while he's preparing to open this new store, the family made arrangements to dig a new well. One morning, Mrs. Moore went to the smokehouse with a butcher knife and was alarmed to see the apparition of what appeared to be a Native American spirit who was advancing towards her as if to attack her. The spirit disappeared and was never seen again, and the knife also disappeared after the incident. Mrs. Moore then protested the digging of the new well. She said that the spirit she saw was a warning not to disturb the area. So John Moore, her husband, is like, You're superstitious, this is dumb. And he just proceeded with the digging. And sure as shit, after the well was dug, a Native American grave was found on the site. And according to the author Phillips, this is the first recorded ghost story in Bristol. Here's one I know a lot of you are familiar with. And it's a story that I am surprised I have never done an episode about. This is the Bell Witch. And the story of the Bell Witch is extremely popular, and it began in Robertson County, Tennessee. The legend centers around the Bell family. The Bell Witch, who was thought to be a woman named Kate Batts, was supposedly cheated in a land purchase by John Bell, who was the patriarch of the Bell family. And Bell was a very successful farmer, so he owned a lot of land, a lot of livestock, all that stuff. He had a lot of pool in town, if that makes sense. And the hauntings were between 1817 and 1821. The first notable events began when Bell saw a strange creature in the fields. Also during this time, unfamiliar noises in the house started occurring, and the family began to experience terrifying hauntings, including voices, various afflictions, being pinched or hit by an invisible entity, and a lot more outside of that. The Bell Witch would show up disguised as an animal sometimes, such as a dog or a bird, and then would also terrorize the family that way. 
and she would often focus on John's daughter, Betsy Bell, and would pull the sheets off her bed, physically harm her with kicks, punches, and scratches. And John Bell grew so concerned by the escalating violence that he shared his story with a family friend named James Johnston. So after Johnston experienced the spirit firsthand, word of this spread quick. This story eventually became famous enough to reach General Andrew Jackson. Now, according to legend, Jackson and his party set up their tents outside the Bell home. One man, claiming that he had knowledge of how to deal with witches, and was bragging about his silver bullets, and how they were keeping the witch, you know, away from them and away from the house that night. Yeah, that shit didn't work. To punish him, the witch set her sights on this particular man and gave him a beating that had Jackson's men begging to leave the premises. Now, John Bell died mysteriously in 1820, and it is claimed that he was poisoned by the witch. But the Bell witch continued to haunt the family even after his death. She forced Betsy to break off her engagement with a dude named Joshua Gardner before eventually disappearing for good. Now, some stories claim that she promised to return to haunt uh, John Bell's direct descendants in 1935, but there were no reports by Nashville physician Dr. Charles Bailey Bell. If you want to, you can go visit the historic Bell Witch Cave, which is located in Adams, Tennessee. Next up on the list is the Brown Mountain Lights. This is cool because uh, at the end of this episode, I have an interview with a guy who just recently, uh, like a month ago, just stayed around Brown Mountain, and I interviewed him because he saw these lights, and he is like, the interview is so cool. It's about 40 minutes long, so it's it's additional. I don't know if I'll tack it on to the end of this episode or um, just do it separately. I'm not sure yet. We'll see how long this episode is, but it is a cool interview, and this dude was like, there were a couple times he's like, dude, I freaked out, man, He and he tried debunking it, and he gives you, he's very descriptive of the scene and the wind and where he was and what he was doing and everything like that, so it's a good interview, but the Brown Mountain Lights, they are known as a supernatural phenomenon with Cherokee origins. Now, these lights are found in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina in Burke County, and this is in the... Pisgah National Forest. I did not look up how to pronounce Pisgah, but, uh, you know, if I took the time to look up every pronunciation, I'd take another week doing this episode. Now, locals and tourists both have reported glowing orb-like lights in blue, white, orange, and red hovering approximately 15 feet off the ground in the area near Morgantown, North Carolina. The first recorded sighting of the Brown Mountain Lights happened in 1771 when German engineer John William Gerard de Bram wrote about seeing the lights in his journal. Now, his written account stated that he saw the lights at a consistent time every night, and this led a lot of people to believe he was actually seeing train lights in the distance. But recorded accounts of the Brown Mountain Light sightings happened throughout the 20th century as well, especially as the Linville area gained access to electricity. So while these reported sightings of the colorful lights are known for their inconsistency, the lights are typically seen at night, especially after a rainfall. 
the Brown Mountain Overlook, Wiseman's View Overlook, and Lost Cove Cliffs Overlook are the most popular places to see them. All are located off North Carolina 105 South or North Carolina 181 near Asheville and Boone and offer great scenic vistas at any time of day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I uh, copied these notes from the uh, travel guide because you don't see scenic vistas. But these stories about these lights have been going on for centuries, all right? No one has been able to find out what is causing the event. There have been multiple versions of the origin story throughout the years, though. One legend tells of a brutal battle between two Native American tribes on Brown Mountain, which left many dead on the battlefield. In the evenings, a lot of the women went searching for their sons, husbands, brothers, fathers, and they would use torch lights to guide them. A lot of people claim that the lights seen today are the spirits of the women still searching for their loved ones. Another origin story comes from the 19th century, and this story claims that the lights were the spirit of a young woman who was murdered by her husband. That's all. No details or nothing. <laughs> then we have a third one. This is from a country music song in the early 1950s. A version of the story tells of a man who went hunting on the mountain and never returned home. In this story, one of the man's slaves was sent to search for the missing man, but neither were ever seen again, and the lights are said to be the light of the lantern used to continue the search beyond the grave. Even the U.S. Geological Survey investigated the myths surrounding the lights, and in 1922 they published an extensive report concluding that the lights were a combination of automobile and locomotive lights, light from natural brush fires, or light emitted from other explainable sources. <laughs> I can tell you right now, that is like the greatest scientific explanation ever. They're just like, well, it's got to be one of these six things or something else explainable. <laughs> you know, it's like they couldn't even narrow it down. Now, while the study might be correct for the time, the legend dates back much further than the time of automobiles or locomotives or trains or anything like that. They go all the way back to the days of the old covered wagon, which tells people that, you know what, this shit has been around a lot longer than that. Now, even though sightings of the lights are now a rarity, a lot of people still go to the mountain to try to see them for themselves. And uh, the interview I got, he actually saw them. And it was, it's pretty good, pretty good story. Another crazy legend is of the moon-eyed people. So, according to both Appalachian folktales and Cherokee legend, a group of pale-skinned humanoids called the Moon-Eyed People might be hiding somewhere in the Appalachian Range. Typically, they are associated with the small town of Murphy, North Carolina. The Moon-Eyed People are the short, stout, white-skinned people with big beards and large blue eyes. And their eyes apparently are so sensitive to the sun that they remained nocturnal which is why they're called the Moon-Eyed People. Legend says that the local Native American tribes waited for the full moon to drive the Moon-Eyed People from their underground caves, and the bright light made them weak, which forced them to flee into other parts of Appalachia for good. Moon-Eyed People were considered to be a distinctively separate race of people rather than supernatural beings the Moon-Eyed people were most likely just European settlers 
But what makes the legend so weird is that it dates back hundreds of years before the Americas were even discovered by white people. Because, like I said, this is not only an Appalachian legend, this is a Cherokee legend as well that goes back hundreds of years. So, are the Moon-Eyed people a different, you know, Appalachian scary story? Were they European settlers? Who knows? Today, though, there are exhibits on the Moon-Eyed people, and they can be found at the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy, North Carolina. There is a three-foot-tall sculpture of two conjoined figures thought to represent Moon-Eyed people, which was found in the early 1840s. And Fort Mountain, which is a Georgia State Park, contains the ruins of an 850-foot-long stone wall that is said to have been constructed by the Moon-Eyed people. So, <laughs> I don't know. This one I have to give specific credit because it comes from HorrorObsessive.com and the article was titled Appalachian Ghost Stories and it was written by Sarah Siegfried. And the reason I have to give individual credit is because some of these stories are directly handed down to her through her family. So, um, Sarah Siegfried, we do appreciate these stories. She hails from the rural mountains of Virginia. She enjoys horror movies and ghost stories since childhood. And Sarah, I'm pretty sure we all can agree a lot of my listeners would be friends with you. But one of the stories that she tells in this article is called The Casualties of War. So, Southwest Virginia saw battles during the American Civil War. A lot of battles. A lot of communities have stories of hidden treasures, ghost soldiers, things like that. Her community has several of the stories. And one of those is Crockett's Cove, which saw one of those battles. And it's known as the Battle of the Cove. And it was fought on May 10th, 1864. The Union troops passed through the cove, and the small country church was transformed into a field hospital. Wounded soldiers were treated there by people with very little understanding of germs and sanitation. So, a shitload of people ended up dying. Now, in the 1910s, a young man in Crockett's Cove was looking for a missing cow. He went into the woods after he heard a noise, and he was hoping that his cow was there. He saw a man leaning up against a tree, holding his stomach with blood soaking through his jacket. And the stranger looks at him and says, help me. And he calls out to this boy, and the boy agreed to help him. And he ran back to his farm as fast as he could, and he's trying to get help. And he returned with a bunch of guys, and they were going to carry this wounded guy out of the woods. But they could not find the guy, and there was no sign of him anywhere. So everybody is like, listen, kid, why are you bullshitting us? And the boy says, I wasn't lying. There had been a man in the woods bleeding. And they asked him to describe the wounded man. He described a man wearing a dark blue suit with black boots and a satchel over his torso. And what the boy had described was a Union soldier. The wounded soldier was seen several times in the woods by different people after that. Some people who saw him were hunting... Some were foraging for sassafras, others were just exploring the woods. And apparently, the soldier is still out there, because he has never made his way back home to his family. So, Crockett's Cove, I don't know, I might have to do a ghost hunt down there sometime. This next story is a pretty good one, and also comes from Sarah Siegfried, and this is known as The Treasure Hunt. 
So in this same cove, there is a home with a lot of stories attached to it. There was a family that built a huge home in the area that would be known as Crockett's Cove. And during the Civil War, when the family heard that soldiers could be on their way to that area, they buried their silver and some other wealth near the house to prevent them from stealing their stuff. And for some reason that we do not know, no one ever retrieved the items after the war and they ended up becoming lost. And maybe the person who hid the treasure died before they could actually go back and uh, dig it back up. So this story got passed down into family lore. And there were a lot of communities with uh, similar stories. Was there really a treasure? Did anybody find it? Were they just saying that shit? We don't know. But in the 1960s, the same family owned the property. And some descendants thought it would be fun to go look for the family treasure. They got some shovels, some beer, and a metal detector. As they began to search for the treasure, they started feeling a sense of dread and uneasiness. They began to think that what they were doing was wrong. They basically shook it off as, you know, them just feeling weird, and they continued on with their search. But they also began to talk to each other about these weird sensations and feelings they were having. So one of the family members saw the hair on his arms began to stand up, and he felt like he was being watched. But he continued searching, but he still felt like somebody was staring at him. He tried to ignore that feeling, but then he looked back at the house and saw someone in an upstairs window watching him. Now, at this point in time, nobody is supposed to be in the house, because they were all out on the grounds with him looking for this treasure. So the whole group stopped their search for treasure, and they ended up searching the house for this person they saw in the window, but they found nobody in there. There was no intruder inside. So they go back out to the field, and their metal detector stopped working at that point. So they decided that it would probably just be best not to continue with their little treasure hunt. So later on that night, one of the people in that group ended up falling over the railing on the grand spiral staircase. He only had bumps and bruises. He didn't die, but he insisted that he had not fallen, but somebody had pushed him. All right, a little bit odd there. Now, years later, in the 1980s, the home was unoccupied. So what happens when we find an abandoned house on a nice big property in the 1980s and you ain't got shit to do? You're a teenager, you're going to go explore that shit. So one night, in the 80s, several teens decided it would be fun to sneak inside and look around. When they crept up the front porch stairs, and this was a moonlit night, they found the front door was open for them, and they stopped, and they started daring each other to go inside. So one of them decides, I'm not as scared of this shit, and he just goes right in. And all of a sudden, a large... A really loud sound from the porch roof made everybody scream and run back out. So they heard another of their friends outside laughing, and they just kind of assumed that he was throwing some handful of rock onto the roof or something like that. So everybody just kind of laughed it off, and they chilled for a minute. Right about then, a different member of this teenage group pointed to an upstairs window and started screaming. So... The group hears him screaming, and they're like, oh, here we go. Somebody's fucking with us again. But he's pointing up at this window, and the rest of the group looks up at the window, and they all 
freaked out. They're running away from there, screaming, tripping over each other, trying to get to the car and get the hell out of there. Apparently, there was a man standing in the window watching them. In the same window, the treasure hunters spotted a man 20 years earlier. A widower lives there now. He was married to a woman who was connected to the original family's descendants. He has quiet nights of building model airplanes and has friends over occasionally to play cards. He says he is not troubled by any spirits, he doesn't believe in ghosts, and he loves the house. Him and his wife had restored the home to the former beauty of it during the years that they lived there. The descendants actually gather there for family reunions. And no one has looked for that treasure lately, so maybe it's still out there. I don't know. Alright, before we keep going to the Snake Charmer, the Haunted Church, Old Green Eyes, let's go ahead and take a break. We have a lot more coming up for you. You can either hit that fast forward button or take these few minutes to go grab yourself a drink. I will meet you back here in a few. Alright, so this story is the Snake Charmer. The story came to this woman, Sarah, who wrote the article from her elderly grandparents who heard it from their aged relatives, which would place the origins of this story in the early 19th century. In the small community of Slate Spring Branch, there was a family with a bunch of kids. One of the kids started to act a little weird. She grew weak and had fever dreams, and each night she would go out to the front porch after supper was served. She continued to behave strangely, and the parents were concerned and curious about what was happening. Her parents followed her and peeped outside and saw her feeding milk and cornbread to a snake that had raised its head through a knot hole in the porch floor. So the adults freaked out, they hurried back inside, and they were sitting there talking about what they need to do. The parents had heard of this sort of thing before, and it was of snakes being able to charm people into doing their bidding for them. And the father decided to kill the snake to stop the charm. And they were ready the next night. After supper, the little girl rushed outside to feed the snake, and the father followed quietly. As he was out there, the snake raised his head through the hole for his meal, and the father grabbed the snake and cut off its head as fast as he could. But as he did that, he heard a thump. And when he was finished dealing with the snake, he looked away. He saw his daughter lying dead on the porch. Some unbreakable bond had been forged between the snake and the little girl because she had been charmed. Alright, next up we have the Haunted Church. Mount Olive Methodist Church is in the small community of Austinville. For decades, teenagers have gone to the church after dark to wait for a phenomenon that is still unexplained. It is said that a giant ball of light can be seen floating over the road into the church and down the aisle. Some say the ball of light is connected to a resident of the church cemetery. The story was a popular local legend that has died off and then resurfaced several times as new generations learn about it. The small community surrounding the church deals with the traffic of curiosity seekers for a period of time and then sees all of the people just kind of go away and everything calm down again. Several people have tried to duplicate the ball of light, 
They suspect it could be a reflection of oncoming headlights or a view of the moon. Despite efforts to recreate the lights and explain it away, no one has been able to do so. Teens would sit in the parking lot waiting to see the lights or visiting with one another and would experience something else. Several have reported hearing a tap-tap-tap on their cars. Others have felt their car being shaken by something unseen. A 1977 newspaper article in the Desert Sun titled, A Busy Ghost Haunts the Small Virginia Church, describes the haunting. Uh, That article is actually very easy to find if you want to look it up. Next on the list, we have Old Green Eyes. This is a ghost who is said to haunt the battlefield in various forms, ranging from a Confederate soldier to a green-eyed panther. This has been a part of Chickamauga battlefield lore since the last shot was fired at a bloody battle that claimed 34,000 casualties on September 19th and 20th, 1863. The tales of green eyes and other phantom sightings stem from the soldiers who lived through the Civil War. Green Eyes is rumored to be a man who lost his head to a cannonball, and he's frantically searching the battlefield at night for his dislocated body. One of the earliest ghost sightings shortly after the Civil War ended is documented in Susie Blaylock McDaniel's book called The Official History of Catoosa County. Jim Carlock, an early resident of the Post Oak community, writes in McDaniel's book about returning home from a centennial celebration on Market Street in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1876. And this was just uh, 13 years after the battle. Carlock writes, Did you ever see a ghost? They used to see them on the Chickamauga battlefields just after the war. So Carlock goes on to write that while passing through the battlefield or near it, The exact location is unknown. It was dark and there were no houses nearby when he and his friends spotted something 10 feet high with a big white head. He said that him and his companions were in a wagon and Mr. Shields was riding horseback. Carlock said Shields rode up and hit the ghost and a baby cried out and the ghost said, let me alone. He said the entity appeared to be a ghostly apparition of a black woman with a bundle of clothes on her head. But the Civil War is not the only source of death that may have uh, imprisoned all these spirits at the battlefield. The hill behind Wilder Tower saw the deaths of many soldiers, mainly from typhoid fever. This was during their training and encampment on the battlefield in preparation for the Spanish-American War. According to various sources, other tales claim Green Eyes existed before the Civil War and circulated among the soldiers during the fighting, or that the spirit existed as early as the Native American occupation of the land where the battlefield is now located. Fort Oglethorpe resident Denise Smith said she encountered a ghostly being with green eyes on a cold, foggy night in the park in 1980. Smith said she had just gotten off work at the Crystal Restaurant in Fort Oglethorpe and was taking a shortcut through the park on her way home on Cleo Drive. She was driving really slow through the fog. She was about a half mile from Wilder Tower. She said, It was raining and foggy, so I was going real slow. I was going through the S-curve past Wilder Tower when I saw something big in the road, about eye level, and all I could see were these big green eyes. 
It was so foggy I couldn't see a body. I got closer and it just disappeared. Smith said she always thought the tale of the ghostly green-eyed beast was a myth and never would have believed it in a million years. But she now says she won't step foot in the park after nightfall. Another woman named Laura Gilstrap, who is a lifelong Fort Oglethorpe resident, said that when she was 16 years old in 1990, she and about 10 of her friends were enjoying a hayride inside the battlefield when the unexpected happened. She said around dusk, the group decided to take a break around Wilder Tower. Off in the field near the tower, they saw a flaming torch that would disappear, then it would mysteriously reappear again. Suddenly, the kids heard a horse's hoofbeats, and a skeleton in a Confederate soldier's uniform appeared to dismount from a ghostly horse with green eyes. She said the skeleton constantly repeated the name Amy before disappearing for good. Another man named David Lester who's a Civil War enthusiast and reenactor, said about five years ago, he and some of his fellow reenactors were camping out at the battlefield as part of Living History Days, which is an event that gives park visitors a first-hand look at how soldiers lived during the war. Lester said several of his friends had wandered into a neighboring camp to say hello to their fellow soldiers. The men talked with the neighboring campers for several hours before returning to their camp to sleep for the night. The next morning, the men went back to the camp to wish them a good morning and see how they were getting along, but they were gone. And there was no sign of their campfire from the night before, and not one trace of any human occupation at the site. Next up, we have the Black Dog, and... There are a lot of different stories and origins with the black dog, all right? This traces its roots back to old Europe, where the most famous was the spirit called Shuck. So old Shuck was a spirit who was said to only appear either before a death or only to those who would soon die. Nothing would get him to leave because he must wait for his owner, which is death, which is a trait shared with the white phantom dogs in Appalachia that either sit outside homes or follow people around. The black dog is thought to be the primary animal form of the devil himself, which would be the hound. These large black spirit dogs are described as being larger than a normal dog with glowing red or yellow eyes and they smell like rotten eggs. The legends extend from the British Isles, where they often had different forms, such as being headless, having human faces, or walking on their hind legs. There are a lot of stories. One of them is the black dog that appeared at a church and took two lives in Bungay, Suffolk in 1557. Black dogs also have their benevolent side as well. Stories of protecting graveyards, walking lost people out of a dense forest, or simply keeping guard over people from thieves or other threats. One story is of the black dog of the Blue Ridge. And here's that story. In Virginia, there is a pass that was much traveled by people going to Bedford County and by visitors to Mineral Springs in the vicinity. In the year 1683, the report was spread that at the wildest part of the trail, 
in this pass, there appeared at sunset a great black dog who, with majestic tread, walked in a listening attitude about 200 feet and then turned and walked back. So he passed back and forth like a centennial on guard, always appearing at sunset to keep his nightly vigil and disappearing again at dawn. And so the whispering went with bated breath from one to another until it had traveled from one end of the state to the other. Parties of young cavaliers were made up to watch for the black dog. A lot of people saw him. Some believed him to be a veritable dog sent by some master to watch. Others believed him to be a witch dog. A party decided to go through the pass at night, well armed, and see if the dog would attack them. Choosing a night when the moon was full, they mounted good horses and sallied forth. Each saw a great dog larger than any dog they had ever seen before, and they ended up riding forward. But what they didn't count on was their horses being scared. When they approached the dog, the horses started getting freaked out, and the party was unable to force their horses to take the pass again until after daylight. Then they were laughed at by their comrades, to whom they told their experiences to. Then they decided to lie in ambush and kill the dog and bring it to all the friends that didn't believe them and kept making fun of them. So the next night, all these guys hide behind all these rocks and bushes with guns in their hands and they're ready to kill this thing. And as the last ray of sunlight started going down over the highest peak of the Blue Ridge, the black dog appeared at the lower end of this walk and started walking majestically toward them. When he came opposite of them, every gun fired. When the smoke cleared away, the great dog was turning at the end of his walk and he was acting like he was totally oblivious to the presence of all these people who just shot the shit out of them. So they started firing their guns again, and still this dog just keeps walking. So then all these hunters and all these dudes just start getting freaked out, and they just took off. And uh, that black dog just kept on doing what he was doing. So seven years later, there's this woman who comes over from the old country and she's trying to find her husband who eight years before had come to make a home for her in the new land in America and she traced him to Bedford County and from there all trace of him was lost. A lot of them remembered this tall handsome guy and his dog. Then she starts hearing this uh, story of this big black dog that occupies the mountain pass and she pleaded with all these people to take her to see him and she was saying that if he was her husband's dog he would know her so they make up this party and before night they arrived at this gap and the lady dismounted her horse and walked to the place where the nightly watch was kept by this dog and as the night starts falling the party starts falling back from the trail and they're leaving this lady alone. They're like, hey, uh, you know, we led you out here. We're not fucking with this dog, but you can do your thing. So the sun starts going down a little bit more and the dog appears and walked right up to this lady. The dog laid its head on her lap for a moment, then turned and walked a short way from the trail, looking back to see that she was following him. 
This dog led her until he paused by a large rock where he gently scratched at the ground. And he gave out a long howl and then disappeared. The lady called the party to her and asked them to dig. And because none of these dudes wanted to screw with it and they didn't have any shovels or anything like that, a lot of them wouldn't help her, but she refused to leave. So one of the people rode back to help her. Uh, when they dug below the surface, they found the skeleton of a man and the hair and bones of a big black dog. They found a seal ring on the hand of the man and a heraldic embroidery in silk that the wife recognized. She removed the bones for proper burial and returned to her home. It was never known who had killed the man, but from that time, the big black dog never showed up again because he had done his job. That's just one of these stories. There are so many. So the black dogs that protect the graveyards were called the Church Grim. In the British Isles, it used to be a custom to have a dog buried alive under a church to protect the cemetery from witches, thieves, and even the devil. One story collected in Lincolnshire by Ethan Rudkin is about the Bell's Hope Bogart. Bell Hope was a farm where a nurse had been working. The children she had been caring for mentioned that she had a long walk home that night and wondered what she might do if the black dog Bogart appeared, and she told them playfully that she'd put him in her pocket. Later on, on that walk home, the report says the dog appeared and was running around this woman saying, put me in your pocket, put me in your pocket. <laughs> so, oh man, like I said, that's here's, a, here's another one, here's another one. Like I said, there's a bunch of different stories concerning a black dog. The black dog in Appalachia, also has some of the same beliefs around it like a black cat. It was bad luck for a black dog to howl during a wedding, which meant that the couple were going to face doom. It was bad luck for it to cross your path. If you saw a black dog walking away from you, it meant death because it was walking off with your soul. Its fur, bones, and blood and meat were also used to heal, much like the black cat. Grease from a black dog that was stewed and applied during the dark of the moon was an old cure for rheumatism. A more humane way was to sleep with a dog for three nights past Sunday, so you would start on Friday night, and the dog was said to absorb the rheumatism for you. The blood of a black dog taken from the tip of the tail was wiped over the doorway to keep out haints and other bogarts, and this was possibly a branching off of the black dog's role as a protector. When you were doing a conjuring, you carry the fur of a black dog taken from between the ears and none of your enemies can mess with you. Hair from the tip of the tail, as long as the tail is exceptionally long, will ensure you will be slick and lucky in all that you do. So, <laughs> those are some of the ghost stories. Now we get to get into some of the cryptids and creatures. And of course, the first one being the world famous Bigfoot, old fucking Sasquatch. So all these stories of wild men in the woods date back to ancient times, and that would include indigenous cultures and medieval Europe. But the legend of Bigfoot, which is a very common figure in mountain folklore, it began in 1958 in Humboldt County, California. Jerry Crew, a logging company employee, discovered a set of extra-large footprints in Six Rivers National Park. 
a bunch of rumors spread really quickly through the company where the name Bigfoot soon caught on. Prior to the 20th century, Bigfoot was known by names like Sasquatch, which is a Salish word meaning wild men, or Yeti, which is in Himalayan folklore. The Sasquatch was a hairy creature known for bellowing, stealing livestock, and shaking trees. Many other indigenous tribes had their own version of a large hairy monster, but the myth of the Sasquatch was the first to be recorded by European settlers. Since the mid-1800s, thousands of Bigfoot sightings have been reported all over the United States, and that would include dozens of reported sightings in the North Georgia mountains. Today, you can go celebrate this Appalachian monster at the Bigfoot Festival in Marion, North Carolina. At this annual festival, you can expect educational panels, a Bigfoot calling contest, a costume contest, and Bigfoot-themed food. I am really fucking curious to know. You know what? Maybe I'll go there sometime, check it out. I'm not much into Bigfoot or Sasquatch or any of that, but I don't know. I'd go check it out. I'm sure it's a fun time. Next, we have the Flatwoods Monster which is another popular myth in Appalachian folklore, the Flatwoods monster originated in Braxton County, West Virginia. On September 12, 1952, a few guys named Eddie May, Freddie May, Neil Nunley, and Tommy Heyer were playing at Flatwoods Elementary when they spotted a light shooting across the sky. On their way to go see what that light was, the boys stopped to tell their mother, Kathleen May, who asked National Guardsman Eugene Lemon to escort and join the boys on their little trip. When they arrived at the site of the light's crash, they saw a pulsing red light and a 10-foot tall creature with twisted hands and a glowing green face that seemed to levitate off the ground. When the creature started hissing at them, they all took off running. The event made local and national news, and even prompted an official U.S. Air Force inquiry. Today, tourists come out from all over the country to visit the home of the Flatwoods Monster. To learn more about this uh, scary story, you can visit Flatwoods Monster Museum in Sutton, West Virginia. Next up, we have my favorite, the Mothman. Made famous by a 1997 episode of The X-Files and the 2002 film The Mothman Prophecies. I'm just going to say right now, way famous before that. But The Mothman is a creature with broad wings, red eyes, who originated in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The story of The Mothman began on November 15, 1966. Two couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallet, reported seeing a large flying humanoid with a 10-foot wingspan and glowing red eyes following their car. Similar reports came in over the next few days, and the sensational story was soon picked up by a local newspaper. Mason County Sheriff George Johnson believed it to be a large bird because the stories fit the description of a sandhill crane, which has a red forehead and wingspans recorded up to 7 feet 7 inches. On December 15, 1967, over a year later, the Mothman was credited for the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which killed 46 people. 
For more information on this infamous Appalachian monster, go visit the Mothman Museum in Point Pleasant, where you can take a selfie with the massive Mothman statue displayed outside. And you can also celebrate the Appalachian myth at the annual Mothman Festival, which typically happens on the third weekend in September. And I am going to tell you right now, I've been to Point Pleasant more than once, and I most definitely have selfies with that statue. I want I have a lot of selfies with that statue. Uh, everybody in the Facebook group has seen those. I do uh, get made fun of a lot for that. But anyway, I don't care. Next up, we have what is called the Wampus Cat. The Wampus Cat, also known as the Cherokee Death Cat, is a large cat similar to a mountain lion or cougar with a tan yellow fur, six legs, and large yellow eyes. The legend says that a Cherokee female was cursed by tribal elders for witnessing a sacred pre-hunt ceremony. She had hid under the pelt of a large cat and got turned into the half-woman, half-beast that we hear about in this Appalachian myth. Forever left to wander alone through the mountains, the wampus cat acts out in anger at being cut off from her former life. She's known for standing on her hind legs and using her supernatural powers to drive her victims to insanity. Now, despite being a story about Cherokee people, the wampus cat folklore did not originate with the Cherokee people. Instead, the name came from the Goldsboro News Argus newspaper in North Carolina. In 1964, a hairy ape man who kind of sounds like Bigfoot was reported to be roaming around US 70. The newspaper named the mysterious creature the Wampus Cat, and the name just stuck. The name likely derives from the word Catawampus, which is a mountain folklore saying that describes a boogeyman or something that has gone badly. Strange Ways Brewing, which has locations in Richmond and Fredericksburg, Virginia, brews a beer named after the Wampus Cat, and it is called the Wampus Cat Triple IPA. And of course it has to be uh, an IPA, which basically is a beer that tastes like cat piss anyway. So, definitely not going to be trying that. Next up we have the Wolfman, which is a large canine-esque mammal that roams the hills near Wolf County, Kentucky. Believed to weigh in at 500 pounds and stand taller than 7 feet high, the Wolfman has fur similar to a bear or a gorilla. It is believed to live in caves and has been seen around the area since the 1970s. Then we have the Smoke Wolf, which is a solid black wolf, and it is a massive canine with eyes as red as the sun. One witness who has heard smoke wolves howl and scream at night on his property describes them as pure evil, noting that they kill for fun. The only thing known to deter a smoke wolf is the sound of rattling chains. Next up, we got the Grafton Monster. The Grafton Monster was first spotted in West Virginia in the 1950s and is described as a massive bipedal creature with short fur. It's estimated to weigh between 1,000 and 1,500 pounds and boasts broad shoulders, and uh, its head sits low in front of its body, making it appear headless from behind. It is believed to also eat livestock. Then we have the Raven Mocker. Now, according to Cherokee legend, 
The Raven Mocker is a shape-shifting Bigfoot, standing 7 feet tall with black fur and solid white eyes. This type of Bigfoot is believed to inhabit southwest Virginia and is able to shift into any animal and can also take on the appearance of an old man or woman. In its human form, the Raven Mocker can lurk among unsuspecting people and eat their hearts from their chests without ever leaving a mark. Next up, we have the Silver Giant. The Silver Giant is similar to a bear and can run as easily on two legs as it can on four. When standing, it is between 9 and 11 feet tall. While its fur is generally dark, it has a silver streak of hair running down its back. And uh, that was all the information I had on that one. And then we have the Cherokee Death Cat. This is a cat-like beast that is said to look like a lion and measures approximately 4 feet tall at its front shoulder and 9 feet long from head to tail. The creature can leap extremely far and is also an expert climber when it comes to trees. It feeds on large livestock like cows and horses and focuses its attack directly on their jugular veins. And the last one we have are called Grimm's. These red-eyed beasts guard some Appalachian cemeteries. Legend has it that settlers throughout the region believed that burying the family dog alive in the cemetery would mean the dog's spirit would morph into a grim, a black dog with red eyes, and that the dog would then protect the graveyard. So, pretty interesting stuff right there. All kinds of cryptids, and I know there's so many more, but like I said, it's a... Uh, I was trying to choose the some of the more popular ones, but also some of the lesser known ones. And uh, yeah, this one is going to be a fun one because this is Appalachian superstitions. And I can tell you right now, dude, I do probably more than half of these. And I never knew where they originated from. And you will probably think the same thing once I tell you some of them. It's funny because I was telling my coworker, Bonnie, uh, I work with, uh, she's like 75 or 76, and uh, I was telling her about some of these. I'm like, have you ever heard of these? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard of that for sure. So definitely interesting. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You can either hit that fast forward button, go grab another drink. Either way, I'll meet you back here in a few minutes. All right, here we go. An axe placed under the bed of a birthing mother would kill the pain. Never close a knife you didn't open, or you'll have bad luck for seven years. That one is one that I have always gone by since I was a kid. Always keep a penny in your washer. Always go out the same door you came in. Eat black-eyed peas or collard greens with hog jaw on New Year's Day. Don't wash clothes on New Year's Day, or you will wash a family member out. That one, I never do laundry on Sundays or New Year's Day. Uh, don't sleep on New Year's. Don't do any canning or gardening on your period. Plant your crops under the full moon. Don't walk under a ladder. If you find yourself under one, don't turn around. Just back up. Don't let anyone sweep under your feet. Never give someone a set of knives as a gift. If you give them to newlyweds, it will cut their love. If a black cat crosses your path, turn and go a different way. 
Never repay salt that you have borrowed. If a bad storm is coming, put a two-edged axe into a stump facing the storm to ensure the storm goes around you. If you spill salt, throw a pinch over your left shoulder so you won't have bad luck. When you drop your fork, it means a woman is coming to visit. If you drop a knife, a man is coming to visit. Don't cut your baby's hair before their first birthday. Your baby has to fall off the bed before their first birthday. Run a chicken over your baby to keep it from getting chicken pox. Don't let a pregnant woman see a dead person or the baby will have a birthmark. If cows are laying down or leaves are upside down, it's going to rain. The leaves being upside down is a real thing. That's how we always tell. Hang a horseshoe upside down to keep good luck from running out. Wear a buckeye in your bra to ward off rheumatism. Hold your breath when you pass a cemetery or you'll be the next one to die. If you see a white horse, you'll have good luck. Hold your feet up when you're crossing a railroad track or you'll lose your boyfriend. If you're walking with someone, you have to go on the same side of a post or obstacle or it will break your friendship. Do not wash clothes on Sunday. If your nose is itching, it means company is coming. Open the windows when someone dies and cover the mirrors so that their soul can leave. Hang a mirror by the door to protect against evil. Never leave a rocking chair rocking or you will invite spirits. And there we go. So because of the length of this particular episode, I am going to put out the interview with Shane on a separate episode probably tomorrow. It's like I said, Shane is the guy who I talk to. Uh, he witnessed the Brown Mountain Lights just like a month ago. Super cool interview. I think you guys will like it, but I think I'm just going to do it separately because this is a long enough episode. So let me credit a couple sources here. We got Blue Ridge Mountains Travel Guide, Appalachian Folklore, Monsters, and Superstitions, March 18th, 2022, written by Amy Lewis. Next, we have the Appalachian Ghost Tales and Stories, written October 13th, 2018. We also have the moonlitroad.com. Then we have 10 Mountain Monsters Found Lurking in Appalachia, an article written by Beth Braden. And finally, Holy Stones and Iron Bones, Black Dogs and Appalachian Folklore, which is a blog. So, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you want to stick around for some reviews, you are more than welcome to. First, let me give some uh, information here. If you want to follow me on social media, you can go to Twitter, at PodcastMC. If you want to follow me on Instagram, go to Mysterious underscore Podcast. You can also follow my uh, personal Instagram, as long as you have a real account. Uh, just go to burnitall13. Not hard to find. I do have a TikTok. I can't honestly remember what it's named because I don't get on TikTok very much, but I do have a TikTok as well. I think it's Mysterious Circumstances, but I can't remember the exact name. Uh, if you want to email me, you can hit me at uh, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. Facebook, you can join the group. And uh, yeah, you have to answer the questions. Otherwise, I won't let you in. Sorry. Or the uh, admin won't let you in, actually. And then I also just made a new Facebook page. 
when I took a break from Facebook the last time, they decided to go ahead and just delete my fucking Facebook page for the podcast, so I just waited a few months and uh, decided to make a new one, so if you want to go like the Facebook page, just type in Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, you can find it, like the page. Let's get on with some of these reviews here. Alright, let's see what we got here. This one is from, looks like Roxy Mountain Bob says, Wow, wow, wow. I'm in my 50s and had never listened to podcasts. I had a road trip and decided to try one out and I thought it would be like an audiobook. I was completely sucked into Justin's conversation and I am so impressed by his genuineness, his knowledge that would only come through hours of research and preparation and his complete professionalism. Oh yeah, man. I, you know, I'm professional to an extent. I specifically enjoy feeling like we were just sitting at a table drinking a beer while he is just telling me a story. I'm hooked. I've been listening now to Blood and Dust too, besides Mysterious Circumstances, and listen as much as I can and sometimes repeat episodes. I've tried a few other folks out, but keep coming back to adjusting creation because I compare everything else to him now and they just don't stack up. If I had tried out anyone other than Justin, I probably would have clicked the show off. So I'm thankful for the great entertainment and intellectual stimulation you are providing your listeners. If you ever come towards Charlotte, North Carolina to do a show or investigation, let me know. I'll buy you a beer or five, LOL. A grateful fan, Bob J. I tell you what, Bob, I'm pretty sure we are friends on Facebook now. I think you sent me a friend request. Dude, Charlotte, North Carolina, my guy, I would fucking love to go there. And to be honest with you, I'd go there just for like a weekend trip at some point, man. I don't know about a live show, but I'll still have uh, 5 or 10 or 12 beers with you. And we can talk for hours, dude, because I have a lot of random fucking knowledge in my brain at this point. But... I always appreciate uh, people taking the time to leave to leave reviews, so thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate it, man. I'm really glad you're liking the podcast. Um, next up, we got Duda Man 1979 says, "Love it. I recently found this podcast while looking for episodes about Jesse James, and now I'm hooked. Justin is an amazing host with just enough humor and personal opinions sprinkled in to keep it fun." Hell yeah, dude. That was a great series, man. It was one of my favorite series was Jesse James. Next up, we got uh, Smithers77. Love the podcast. I love listening to a podcast at work. Helps me get through my day and always keeps things interesting. Feels like I'm hanging out with Justin and seems like a guy I'd love to get a beer with. I'll be honest, I am pretty fun to drink with for the most part. Um, keep up the great work. P.S. Would love for you to roast me like a one star. Okay, here's the deal. <laughs> I didn't know what to say to that because I'm like, oh, all right, like I got a five star review, but he wants roasted like a one star. So what I did was I posted that in my Facebook group and asked for a little bit of help. And here is what people came up with. The roasting is not uh, what it usually is, but I think it kind of fits this scenario. So let's see what we got here. Roseanne says, I would seriously be concerned about this person's sensibilities, judgment, and questionable life choices. I mean, Justin, wouldn't you be worried about you if you wanted to hang out with you? (laughs) And... uh, 
It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christina says, we've all heard Justin roast someone before. If you've been around long enough, then you know that this could be brutal. Justin, I would proceed with caution on this one. Tammy says, I don't know. I think I'd do some research Justin style and find out about this person and then proceed to roasting. Clayton says, roast him up a little, but he seems like a cool dude. Matthew says, bruh, like you'd have a beer with stupid plebe? Come on. Only last podcast on the left drops that fucking low. <laughs> Keith says, comment seemed fine until the roasting suggestion. I don't know. Does that mean something different in the U.S. than what it does here? <laughs> Chuck says, make it weird. Make it awkward. Watch some roast jokes. You got this. Think about us playing pool, drinking beer, rocking out. And then Kathy says, actually, this guy sounds fun. <laughs> so that, uh, that's about all I got, man. It's not too hardcore roasting. But uh, you will actually hear one here in a few minutes if that's uh, what you're into. Because I do have a nice little one-star review. And for the love of God, you guys are never going to guess what it concerns. This one is from Kevin7845. Been listening several months now. Best podcast out there, in my opinion. Just listened to the Wild Bill interview. It was great. I hope there will be more. Uh, Kevin, yeah, there actually will be more. Uh, Bill reached out to me last week and wanted to talk about some more stuff. Apparently, the prison that he's at had a bunch more killings and... Uh, murders and shit so yeah that's what we're gonna do man i'm gonna have him back on here uh very soon and definitely do another interview and thank you very much for that five star this one is zen beginner 33 good show overall i enjoy the show for the most part but the constant cussing gets old quick that's a two star right there he did give me a pity star as we know the two star reviews are pity stars Listen, Zen Beginner, I don't know if you're a female or a male, but there's this cool fucking thing at the beginning of the podcast called a disclaimer that literally tells you there's going to be cussing. Then there's this really other cool thing, and it's a big giant fucking E right next to the episodes that there is heavy cussing in. That E stands for explicit. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that word. You can Google it if you want. Then besides that, if you actually read the podcast description, there's this thing right at the top, at the beginning, in all capital letters, surrounded by asterisks, that says explicit language. Now, I'm fucking sure that you are an intelligent per. Well, I mean half ass. If you can leave a fucking review, I'm thinking that you can read. I mean, you can write, obviously, or at least type for that matter. You're probably one of those people who can't even fucking read or write cursive. That's kind of what I'm thinking. But, uh, I mean, dude, fucking read, you know? You don't even have to fucking read. You can listen to the disclaimer at the beginning of the fucking episode. Anyway... I don't even know what to say about reviews like that anymore. It's like, are you fucking kidding me at this point? I have literally been doing this for almost seven fucking years. In a month, almost exactly a month, it'll be seven fucking years. And people still just don't fucking get it. Anyway, moving on. We have a lovely 9185 stars favorite podcast, Keep Up the Good Work. 
Oh, man, this one right here. Five stars, P226 SIG. Hell yeah. It gets me through the day. I found this podcast while I found Blood and Dust. I listen to it while I'm at work, and it's how I get uh, through a boring day. Dude, I tell you what, I don't listen to much podcasts, uh, or many podcasts, I should say. I am a fucking audio drama freak. Like, it's TV for your fucking ears, man. Like, I listen to a lot of fucking audio dramas. Um, I've thought about making one before, but uh, yeah, I just don't have time for that shit. But uh, there's a couple podcasts I listen to, though. But I do appreciate that, and I'm glad I can get you through the day. This one is funny. Oh, my body. It says, five stars, great podcast. Only podcast I can relax and fall asleep to. Keep it up. Hell yeah. Next up, we got J.D. Dodger. Very interesting. I have tried many podcasts. I rate them by the voice mostly. I enjoy listening to Justin. Doesn't bother me. He uses some four-letter words. He does his research and is just as baffled at what happens to the person as I am. I really enjoy your podcast. Keep up the good work, Justin. Sincerely, JDF. Hell yeah, JDF. I'm telling you what, man. My reactions are pretty fucking real, you know? Because that's why I pick these cases, because they're fucking weird. Or they're fun, you know, one or the other. Next up, we have Mrs. BL, the literal best. I love this show. Justin, you are amazing. Your show is so well done. The conversational style. It's like an old friend or cousin telling you a compelling story. Your topics are varied and always intriguing. I can and do listen for hours. Also, your roasting of bad reviews has me rolling laughing. Keep on being awesome. Love you. I tell you what, Mrs. BL, I love you too. And I hope you uh, I hope you have a great day. Whatever time you're listening, I hope you have a great day. Next up, we have R. Roberts 516 Please don't change a thing. I love the fact they can't label this podcast as true crime, history, or paranormal. It's a great mixture of it all and keeps everything from being repetitive and boring. Your topics and content is so interesting, the F-bombs float by without me noticing. Thanks for the hours of non-political entertainment. As for your haters, they need to stay on their couch drinking their buttermilk while watching Matlock. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I like that review because you have a very good point. They really can't label me in any specific genre because I do a little bit of everything. And if I find something interesting, I'm going to do it. I love paranormal. I love history. I love crime. Uh, as long as it's unsolved, you know. Even some of the weirder solved ones. Um, next one, I'm not sure how to take this one. This is from fucking July, so they probably, I don't know how this, it's a five-star review, okay? And it says MN Fanatic, which I'm assuming is Minnesota Fanatic. And it says, meh. <laughs> not a show for me, but I've listened to a few episodes. Too much rambling and repeating self. Guests are usually way too quiet. Got tired of getting my ears blown out. Just didn't hear half the conversation story or story. I love a little slash in there when there's a co-host. Don't mind the profanity at all. Host is usually quite shocked to learn a case has already been covered. There's millions of podcasts covering true crime. The shocking part is if only one or two cover a case. <laughs> I'm telling you what, man. I hope you hit that fucking five-star button by accident because I would fucking destroy this goddamn review. Yeah, 
Um, I don't know what fucking episodes you listened to or how long ago I fucking made them. Oh, man. I want to go off on that one, but they did give me five stars. But uh, Minnesota Fanatic, you really fucking need to branch out and listen to way more episodes, dude. Or do that, whatever the fuck. I don't know. I think you're kind of fucking slow. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I started this podcast seven years ago when there weren't millions of podcasts. Some of you don't remember that long ago. I get it, because I'm pretty sure this person's like a fucking teenager or something. I'm never shocked when a case has been covered by somebody else. I And if I was, it was in the beginning at some point in time, so... Next up, we got uh, five stars from Beach Boy 51. Love it. Justin's a fantastic researcher. His presentation of each subject is excellent. I'm 65 years old and have always been a history buff. His research on Jesse James and Billy the Kid was eye-opening for this old man. I tell you what, Beach Boy 51, you are fucking awesome, dude. And like I said, Billy the Kid probably hands down. If I had top three favorite episodes or series for that matter... Dude, Billy the Kid is up there. That was crazy awesome. I don't listen to my own episodes ever. (laughs) There's maybe a dozen I've listened to after I edit and put them out, and that one is a great series. I don't know if I've read this one. This one is DT Keeper, two stars. Why the Profanity? Not great, but not a bad show. But I'm almost to the point of not listening anymore because I don't think I can stand any more of the needless, highly distracting, immature profanity. Come on, man! Exclamation point. Well, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the other motherfucker. (laughs) Okay? If you take the time to listen to a disclaimer, to read the podcast description... To look at the episodes that have a great big fucking E right next to them. You will know there is profanity in this podcast. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, my heart bleeds for you right now. There's a good chance I might lose sleep over the fact you can't handle the profanity. And I will be the first one to say, some episodes have more than others. There's also episodes where I don't curse at all. Like when I do episodes with Roseanne, she doesn't like cursing on her podcast. I don't curse. You know, it's pretty simple. You know, if I'm into it, it's just going to happen. Dude, here's the deal. If my 87-year-old grandma can fucking get around it, she don't care. She doesn't say anything. You know what I mean? She's 87, dude. That's an old country woman right there. You will be okay. I promise you that. I promise you. But anyway, that's all I got for you. I love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate everybody being understanding about uh, my unruly episode schedule right now full disclosure um back in early november actually on my birthday on november 4th my dad was uh, diagnosed with a very rare very aggressive terminal cancer and it has been a roller coaster of a fucking life man for the last four or five months uh, we're all trying to deal with it and maintain and uh, we're all working together as a family and we're trying to enjoy as much as we can at this point in time I really don't like talking about it. People on my social media, personal social media, you know, they know what's going on. I'm not going to, like, start talking about it right now because I'm I'm going to start getting upset. But, um, you know, that's, that's why my um, episodes have been very, very sporadic. I've gone, like, you know, five, six weeks without putting out an episode. I got a lot of shit going on, you know what I mean? 
But I appreciate everybody being understanding. I appreciate everybody that has donated to my dad's medical bills to help out and everything like that as well. It, honest to God, means the fucking world to me, man. Like, all these people who have never met me in person want to help me and my family out. And um, I just can't thank all of you enough. I fucking love you guys so much. And, like, this is why I do what I do. I've always, I've always prided myself on the fact that this podcast... I try to bring people together, even though they might not be into the same genres or the same topics or from a city or a country or uh, whatever the case is. Like, we all have similarities. We all come together. We have a good time. We try to enjoy life. All these people who have reached out and um, taken the time and, like, donated to my dad's cause, I really, really cannot thank you guys enough. I fucking love you. For all the other listeners out there who did not know that, who aren't part of like the Facebook group or don't follow me really on social media, um, that's that's a lot of the shit going on and why my episodes have, you know, taken a little bit of time sometimes. You know, I got to take care of myself. I got uh, kids and, you know, they're going through it too. It's just uh, been a rough patch, you know. It's life sometimes, I suppose. But I uh, just wanted to to give a shout out to all you guys and, and just say I appreciate you guys for being patient and understanding and um, so caring during these last um, few months. So love you guys. And until next time, I'll see you on the flip side.